I'm Lisa Fine, and I'm one of the co-hosts of the Great Women in Compliance podcast. You are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report. Check out Great Women in Compliance on the Compliance Podcast Network, and it posts every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Eastern Time. You can also join in the conversation at the GWIC community on LinkedIn as well. This episode, I'm joined by three lawyers from Miller and Chevalier to look at the summer 2021 edition of the Executives at Risk newsletter. Lauren Brigerman, member at Miller and Chevalier, discusses cartel. Catherine Pappas, counsel at Miller and Chevalier, gives us a pandemic and FCPA update. Ian Herbert, counsel at Miller and Chevalier on AML and other frauds. Fascinating exploration of important white collar issues. I know you will find this episode useful. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Lauren, uh, what have you seen or what did you and your team see in the area of wage fixing and price fixing? Yeah, so we're definitely seeing DOJ focus much more on the labor markets. So DOJ is finally putting action behind its words and charging individuals criminally in waging and what we call no-poach cases. Since the end of 2020, we've seen that the antitrust division has brought charges against both companies and executives for allegedly engaging in wage fixing and entering into these no-poach agreements. No-poach agreements are where competing firms agree with each other not to solicit each other's employees. And this is the first time the antitrust division has brought criminal charges on a theory that colluding with a competitor to set compensation constitutes criminal cartel conduct as opposed to some sort of civil violation. Up until the end of 2020, DOJ had only pursued these cases civilly. And that's notwithstanding the fact that DOJ came out with guidance back in 2016, put out some guidance for HR executives and basically threatened to pursue these cases criminally, but never really did so until the end of 2020. And so we've seen a whole slew of cases coming out of the department charging individuals and executives criminally. Most recently, just yesterday, the antitrust division announced charges against an outpatient medical care center called DaVita Inc., and its former CEO for conspiring with competitors not to solicit each other's employees. So, and that comes on the heels of several other indictments over the past couple of months in the same area. It really remains to be seen, though, whether this is a viable area of law that the antitrust division can pursue, though, because this it's a novel theory that this constitutes what's called per se or criminal conduct, and it hasn't been tested in the courts before. Um, we've seen one company has filed a motion to dismiss the indictment, and so we'll want to follow what happens there to see if DOJ can continue to bring these charges. Lauren, in a prior life, I represented a large number of Buffalo wing stores. And in that part of my life, I was actually involved in purchasing a product. So I've been watching chicken prices basically since the 80s. Uh, why are there so many um, investigations and, and enforcement actions and settlements in this area? And once again, uh, we are still, still seeing more, if not price-fixing, cartel activity in uh, chicken prices and from chicken manufacturers. And is this an anomaly or is this uh, pretty much ongoing? Yeah, I would say the poultry production, as it's called, poultry production industry investigation is one of DOJ's more active ones. I would say in terms of why this industry, well, I hate to say it, but um, 
chicken is viewed as sort of a commoditized or homogenized type product. And so, and, you know, with a relatively small number of companies that produce this particular product. So it sort of lends itself to the type of industry where there could be price fixing conduct. Um, I do want to say this, even though it is DOJ's more successful investigation right now, you kind of, it is a little bit of a mirage and you have to kind of look behind the facts here. So typically when DOJ has a big successful, including cross-border investigation, those investigations are initiated because there is a leniency applicant who comes in and tries to seek leniency from the division um, by assisting in the investigation and cooperating. Here in this investigation, it was actually initiated after there was a civil class action filed in Denver back in, I think, 2016. So that's many years ago. We didn't see the first charges criminally in this investigation until 2020, which means the DOJ had the playbook of the plaintiff's um, lawyers in that civil class action to sort of go by when they initiated their investigation. And keep in mind that while it is, again, one of DOJ's more prolific investigations, you've only got two companies that have been indicted and 10 individuals. As I understand it, none of those individuals have pled guilty. They've all been charged, but they're fighting the charges. So we'll see whether DOJ can actually secure some guilty pleas here. Lauren, one of the areas that I always find most interesting in the executives at risk newsletter, and generally because I'm such a law geek, is extradition. And whether or not a European who may or may not be under indictment in the United States can go to Disneyland or go to um, Schiphol Airport in uh, Antwerp, uh, Amsterdam and worry about being uh, extradited. What's happening on the extradition front that uh, caught your attention? Yeah, we have seen an increase in extradition activity in recent months that we've been following. There have been at least four rulings granting extradition to the U.S. to face white-collar crimes charges in 2021. And all of these favorable rulings by foreign courts were granting extraditions of individuals who were not their own citizens. So individuals who may have been crossing into their borders, going through the airports or whatnot, and then were caught up and arrested. Um, as we know, many countries have laws barring extradition of their own nationals, so that's not terribly surprising. And also, most of the individuals ordered to be extradited were charged with money laundering-related or similar types of crimes. So just to give you a rundown of some of these cases, in June, a Spanish court ordered John McAfee, who was the founder of McAfee Associates, if you recall, the antivirus software company, extradited to the U.S. to face tax evasion charges. Ian may be talking a little bit about other charges against John McAfee. Um, unfortunately, he was embroiled in a lot of money laundering related charges as well. He tragically died by suicide right after learning that he was going to be extradited to the U.S. And then back in March, a Malaysian court granted the extradition of a North Korean national to the U.S., to face criminal charges that he engaged in a money laundering scheme to provide luxury goods to the North Korean government, and that he also defrauded U.S. banks. Also in that same month, the Czech Republic ordered two Ukrainian nationals extradited to the U.S. to face money laundering conspiracy charges. And then going back to January, a U.K. judge allowed the extradition of a business named Arif 
Nakvi, who was the founder of the Abraj Group, formerly the largest Middle East private equity firm. And he was ordered extradited to the U.S. to face fraud, theft, bribery, and racketeering charges in the Southern District of New York. So we've certainly seen a lot of activity recently on the extradition front. If I could now turn to more of an international issue, and I think we had some fairly significant developments around emissions testing fraud uh, in the EU and in Europe. And I was wondering if you might touch on those and how that might impact uh, white-collar prosecution in the United States. Sure. Yeah. And for listeners who may not be familiar, the emissions testing fraud investigation or dieselgate, as some people call it, first became public in 2015 after the EPA was tipped off that Volkswagen was cheating on diesel emissions tests. Since then, numerous regulators around the world, not just in the U.S., have opened investigations and charged companies and executives, including the former CEO of Volkswagen, And most recently, there's been a whole slew of civil class actions that have been filed against Volkswagen and its executives, including in Germany. And I would expect if Germany is anything like the U.S. in terms of civil litigation, those class actions go on for years. So even if the criminal cases come to an end, I would foresee that that activity is going to continue. And another thing that's happened in this investigation is that it has broadened beyond Volkswagen to other car companies such as Audi and Fiat. In the U.S., in April, a superseding indictment was unsealed against two Italian nationals who were senior diesel managers at Fiat, and they were charged with conspiring to falsify emissions controls. The indictment alleges that the two men, along with um, previously charged individuals, collaborated um, or calibrated the emissions control function of the cars to to ensure that um, they produced a lower level of emissions than they actually were. And in January of 2019, Fiat agreed to pay more than $800 million to settle civil claims that it illegally equipped diesel vehicles with the software that defeats the emission standards. Another thing we saw in June coming out of Europe, Volkswagen is a German company, the board announced that it had secured a settlement with two former Volkswagen executives requiring them to pay personal compensation in addition to the DNO insurance that was going to cover the settlement. The former Audi CEO, um, a Volkswagen CEO, Martin Winkertorn, agreed to pay more than $13 million of his own compensation as part of the settlement. And former Audi CEO, Rupert Stadler, agreed to pay $5 million. So this investigation has spawned all of this follow-on civil litigation, including litigation by the board. And uh, I, I would say we can assume this is going to go on for some time. Catherine, if I could turn uh, to you now and uh, start off with a a general question about what you guys saw uh, of the effect of the coronavirus pandemic pandemic and COVID-19 on white-collar prosecutions in general, and then turn to what you're seeing in terms of the U.S. government's response to alleged fraud in either the PPP program or in more general uh, personal protective equipment, PPE. Sure. So I think big picture, um, 
traditional fraud-related charges have certainly declined over the course of the pandemic. And a couple of publications can help us put some data behind that conclusion. So um, the DOJ's fraud section published their year in review. The U.S. Sentencing Commission published their review of fiscal year 2020. And at a high level, we're seeing less charges and less convictions. To put a number on it, the fraud section last year charged about a third less individuals in 2020 compared to 2019. they secured approximately 17% fewer convictions. The Sentencing Commission similarly saw a drop, a 16% decline in reported convictions. And unsurprisingly, a big driver of this decline is the lack of in-person court proceedings. So if we look at jury trials, we can really see the biggest impact from the pandemic. Um, The fraud section convicted 16 individuals after a jury trial in 2020, and that was down from 37 in 2019, so an over 50 percent drop. Um, So as we kind of look at the first half of this year, when a lot of courts were still in pandemic mode, there's likely still going to be a bit of a downward trend in the first half of this year. But courts are increasingly starting to sit juries, open up their courthouses to the public, and they have this year-long pipeline um, of trials and other criminal proceedings that are lined up. So we'll be watching to see what the second half of the year looks like and um, if we end 2021 a little bit more like 2019 or if it's somewhere between 2019 and 2020. On the, the your question about kind of pandemic-related fraud, you know, as everything was kind of declining and the numbers I just set out, a growth area certainly for the fraud section was pandemic-related fraud, including PPP fraud or other kinds of um, related issues. So the Market Integrity and Major Frauds Unit at DOJ last year charged almost 100 individuals in PPP-related cases, um, which was nearly a third of all of their fraud section charges. Um, At the same time, the healthcare fraud unit was coordinating with a working group of federal law enforcement and public health agencies to combat more broadly COVID-19 healthcare fraud. And just a couple months ago in May, the attorney general announced the establishment of a COVID-19 task force to enhance coordination across the DOJ, FBI, and other agencies. And and that's looking at both the criminal and civil side. So it's certainly an active area um, for, for the DOJ. I'd like to turn now to the FCPA. Uh, many have decried the first six months of the year uh, as a six months where nothing happened. Uh, first of all, I'd like you to disabuse our listeners of that. Uh, but then also, in addition to talking about some of the individual prosecutions, where you might think uh, uh, FCPA uh, enforcement might go uh, in the second half of this year and, and uh, more generally in the Biden administration. Sure. So I think um, in terms of a little bit of a slowdown that we saw at the beginning of this year, it's not unusual when there's a change of administration to see a bit of a slowdown in enforcement actions, especially as individuals aren't yet confirmed to key positions within the administration. And I think that's, you know, true in the FCPA context as well. We have seen a couple settlements um, on the corporate side. We've certainly seen guilty pleas and charging decisions on the individual side um, relating to the FCPA. So there's certainly been activity. And I think um, it wouldn't be surprising to see an uptick as we reach the end of year mark um, for the Biden administration's first year. So to dig in, I guess, on some of the details there, um, on the individual front, Um, last year, FCPA enforcement actions were certainly down. Um, The fraud section reported 
28 individuals were charged and there were 15 convictions. On the conviction side, that was down about 50% from the year before. Um, a little different in the corporate front. Um, so we're not really seeing as much of a pandemic impact on the corporate front. Um, there were about the same number of resolutions on the corporate side in, in 2019 and 2020. Um, and the, uh, the global monetary amount of the re resolutions went up significantly. And that was a result of the Airbus and, um, Goldman Sachs settlements this year. Like I said, we've seen a couple of FCPA corporate settlements. We would expect to see more, um, Again, turning back to the individual side, there has been a bit of a slow start, um, but that could definitely start to shift as courts open up and, and juries are seated. We've seen the resolution of matters that were filed within the last couple of years, but we've also seen new charging decisions and new indictments focused on money laundering charges arising out of bribery schemes. Um, among the major FCPA resolutions on the individual side um, so far this year was the April guilty plea of the former CEO of Brascom, Jose Carlos Grubasich. He pled guilty to conspiracy to violate the FCPA for his role in a bribery scheme involving Brascom and its parent. Um, and in May, the DOJ announced that an indictment had been unsealed that charged former diplomats out of Embassy of Chad, one of their wives, and a former energy company director for their roles in a bribery and money laundering scheme. Um, Naeem Tiab, the energy company director, uh, allegedly arranged a $2 million bribe to be paid to one of the diplomats' wives through a sham contract for consulting services and for shares in the company to be issued to the wife and to another individual. Um, the DOJ indicated in their recent press release this year um, that he had pled guilty to violate the FCPA back in April 2019. Um, and finally, to focus on a more recent um, set of conduct, uh, the DOJ announced money laundering charges in May against a group of individuals, two former Bolivian government officials and three U.S. citizens for their roles in a bribery and money laundering scheme that spanned November 2019 into April 2020. So a little bit of um, the beginning of the pandemic conduct in that one. And that involved the owner of a Florida tactical equipment company um, allegedly paying 600000 in bribes to Bolivian government officials to obtain a multi-million dollar contract. So we're certainly seeing DOJ actively seeking money laundering charges connected to bribery schemes. And on the, on the corporate front, um, like I said, while the pace has been slower this year, we'll continue to watch for trends as the year comes to a close um, and the administration really gets its feet under it and gets people in key positions. Catherine, one of the things I was really looking forward to asking you about was the Biden administration's memorandum on corruption as a national security issue. And although that was focused on the government's role in both uh, uh, looking at the issue and determining enforcement priorities, I see this as really a harbinger of uh, change coming for corporations and executives. And I wondered either uh, kind of what are your thoughts that this might mean for the corporate world and then the kinds of discussions you and your team are having with uh, corporate executives around this memorandum. Is it a sort of additional information about uh, where corruption prosecutions may be going or is it really something new that you're able to talk to your clients about? So I think the memorandum, like you said, really focuses on collaboration among agencies, but we can pull some themes out of it. I think a key theme is financial transparency in financial institutions, um, but also, you know, for companies. Um, and I think there's a couple other things that have happened in recent months that help 
inform where we see trends going. So I think we would expect FinCEN, the, the Treasury Department's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, to be playing a key role, both based on the themes that are outlined um, in the memorandum, as well as FinCEN's set of national priorities that were released in June, which also placed corruption um, as a key priority, and then the impact of the Anti-Money Laundering Act um, from the end of last year, which again is really focused on, on transparency. I think that companies should expect the government to use its subpoena power now to, um, to ask foreign banks with correspondent accounts in the U.S. for information. Um, they should be looking out for, you know, new beneficial ownership disclosure requirements. Um, and, and companies should really be focusing on, on their anti-money laundering compliance programs. Um, and I think amidst all of this, we shouldn't lose sight of domestic corruption as a concern as well as international. Um, although a lot of these issues involve cross-border investigations, I think both um, the international and the domestic side will be a priority. We'll be back with Ian Herbert after this quick message. Ian, if I could uh, turn to you now and ask you what you and the team saw on uh, the AML front, and I'll begin with individual prosecutions, which may have caught your attention or been referenced in uh, this edition of the newsletter. Yeah, and one trend that we've been seeing or that we're going to be watching in the individual prosecution space for money laundering uh, will relate to facilitation um, of corruption. And and I think sort of to pick up, pick up where Catherine left off with the White House memorandum on countering corruption, it, a, a piece of that uh, talks about holding accountable facilitators of corruption. And uh, I think we could see you know, more focus on that area going forward. Um, one interesting case that stood out related to the prosecution of two bankers who were involved in the Odebrecht bribery scandal. And in May, the CEO of the Austrian bank was arrested, and then the indictment against him and another banker was unsealed. And according to the indictment, the bankers used fraudulent transactions to help Odebrecht move $170 million from accounts in New York through the Austrian bank to offshore shell company accounts that the bankers had set up. And those offshore shell company accounts um, were secretly controlled by Odebrecht. And the, the way that the transactions moved the payments to the shell companies were recorded as legitimate business expenses and then deducted from, um, from the company's income. And then the, but were in fact used as uh, slush funds to funnel bribes to government officials, according to the indictment. Uh, and then the, the bank and the bankers received substantial fees in connection with it. So this case is, uh, predates the memo uh, that you guys were talking about. That memo came out in June. This uh, arrest happened in May, and it's the indictment was from back in 2020. But I think it, it's a good example of how the government might focus on facilitators of corruption in similar cases. In one of the most interesting developments I've been following is prosecutions for failures to set up uh, AML controls. We've seen a wide variety of, of uh, enforcement actions from a wide variety of U.S. government agencies and regulators. And I wanted to ask you, what, what, do you, what have you seen in that area? And is that an area that may be ripe for uh, uh, enforcement actions going forward? 
Yeah, I think it's going to be an important area going forward, as Catherine mentioned, with the passage of the Anti-Money Laundering Act and the Corporate Transparency Act. I think the beginning of the year has sort of seen an increased focus on on all AML-related compliance issues. Um, And to take one example, the Corporate Transparency Act will require U.S. companies, um, with exceptions that I don't need to go into, to report uh, beneficial ownership information to FinCEN, and the law makes it a criminal offense for individuals to willfully provide or attempt to provide false beneficial ownership information or to willfully fail to complete the beneficial ownership information. And those are criminal charges against individuals who will be involved in compliance programs. Um, And then sort of a different area, a prosecution that jumped out to us was the indictment in March of two compliance personnel who allegedly willfully set up, uh, failed to set up an AML compliance program for an unsophisticated financial institution. So the two individuals operated a business and uh, provided false assurances to the New York State Employees Federal Credit Union that they could assist in setting up the AML compliance program. They said that they understood the risks and uh, associated with high-risk financial transactions and would conduct appropriate due diligence and touted their experience at uh, domestic banks getting uh, training in AML compliance. And then after they were allowed to set up and operate the AML compliance program, according to the indictment, they failed to do so and helped the credit union clear a billion dollars in high-risk transactions, including cash and foreign check transactions. Um, and the in this case, the bank, uh, the Federal Credit Union was not charged. It was the two individuals who were charged. Um, and it's reading the indictment, it seems to suggest that the, um, the government's theory is that the defendants duped the credit union into allowing them to implement or to fail to implement the AML compliance program rather than some sort of failure on behalf of the bank. Ian, what are you seeing in uh, the area of crypto? Yeah, so so cryptocurrency is always really interesting. Um, there's multiple prosecutions every quarter that we see. And um, I think certainly this year there's been an increased focus uh, about with with just cryptocurrency as an investment. I think, you know, if you just read the news, you see lots of uh, focus on, on NFTs and other cryptocurrencies at, and the investment opportunities they provide. And uh, along with that, you sort of, we've seen some of these classic securities fraud cases in the cryptocurrency space. So in February, one cryptocurrency promoter was arrested and charged for securities fraud um, for allegedly defrauding investors out of about $11 million. Um, the, the promoter marketed investment contract securities to investors claiming that he would use the funds for digital asset mining and they would earn guaranteed profits. And then they were, the investors were later forced to roll over uh, their accounts into an ICO. And uh, the investors never received any digital tokens from the ICO and just received uh, account statements that falsely said that their investments were earning these large returns. So um, the promoter was charged by the DOJ and the SEC also filed a criminal uh, civil case against the promoter and a couple of others. Um, 
So that's like one example of a classic securities fraud scheme, but just involving cryptocurrency. And we, Lauren mentioned uh, another one, which is that John McAfee was charged this year in SDNY for using his Twitter feed to promote ICOs um, while concealing the fact that he'd been paid to promote them uh, by the ICOs. Or, uh, sorry, and in addition, the complaint also alleges that he um, bought cryptocurrencies that were particularly cheap and then promoted them on his Twitter feed and then sold the cryptocurrencies later uh, for large profit. So again, sort of a classic pump and dump scheme um, just in the, the cryptocurrency space. And so you're sort of seeing cryptocurrency becoming a bit more mainstream as an investment. And um, along with that, I guess you'll see probably more prosecutions in the, the same types of investment space that we normally see. And we've uh, talked about uh, enforcement actions uh, in this podcast a bit, but I wanted to change the focus just a bit to ask you, were there any sentencings that uh, caught your attention or caught the attention of the the team for white-collar crimes over the past few months? Yeah. um, I would say that sentences in the white-collar space can often be quite large. Um, But even with that said, there were two sentences that really jumped out to us largely because of the length of the sentences. Um, One was that in March, a certified financial planner received a sentence of 17 years after being convicted at trial of defrauding his clients. And according to the indictment, he sold alternative investment products to his clients without explaining liquidity and resale value and caused his clients to lose between one and a half million and three and a half million dollars. Um, when you follow these white-collar cases uh, closely, you see a lot of loss amounts that are much higher than, than $1.5 to $3.5 million and receive shorter sentences. Um, so that the 17-year sentence, I think, really jumped out to me. Um, hard to know exactly what caused that. The, uh, he did go to trial, and there's typically a trial penalty. And then um, the government in their sentencing memo called him unrepentant. So it looks, and it had sought up to 20 years. So it, it might have something to do with, um, with the acceptance of responsibility. Um, and another case that caught our attention is the CEO of a healthcare company who received a 15 year sentence for his role in a conspiracy in which he and others falsely told patients that they had less than six months to live in order to induce them to enroll in a hospice program that then increased the revenue for his company. Um, And again, 15-year sentence is is a very steep sentence. Um, And that harsh sentence, I I suppose, could be due in part to just the off-putting nature of the crime. Um, But again, it looks like maybe a trial penalty could have been important because there was another co-conspirator who pled guilty, who was sentenced to just over two years in prison. So those were two that really stuck out to us. One other little thing I thought I would note is that uh, in 2020, according to that sentencing commission report that Catherine referenced, there were nearly 6,000 resentencings in federal court, which is a 15% increase from the previous year. And much of that increase came from compassionate release, uh, largely due to concerns over COVID in prison, um, which was, those were obviously huge hotspots at the beginning of the pandemic. 
And then there's also the First Step Act, which increased the ability to apply for compassionate release. So it's a trend that is partially due to the pandemic and, and may not be. So it's something that we'll look um, into as we move out of the pandemic. So guys, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but uh, for any listener who does not subscribe to this newsletter, you absolutely should. So Lauren, can you tell those who are not subscribers yet how they can subscribe and where they can find uh, the most recent edition of the newsletter? Um, absolutely. Listeners can go to millerchevalier.com slash publications and the executives at risk newsletter will be there and there should be instructions for how you can sign up to receive it. Well, Lauren and uh, Ian and Catherine, this has been great. I uh, always uh, really enjoy your newsletter and your insights. So I wanted to thank you all for putting that out for the greater com- community. And I look forward to uh, visiting with you after the next newsletter comes out. Great. We appreciate it. Always look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you for having it. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks for listening to this episode. I'm extraordinarily pleased to announce that my latest book, The Compliance Handbook 2nd Edition, is now available for immediate purchase and delivery. It's purchased, or rather published by LexisNexis. We're going to link to it in the show notes, so please check out what I humbly call the best single-volume author book on the nuts and bolts of compliance. Also, on this month on... The Compliance Life, I feature Asha Palmer. Asha is the CECO at Conversant. She's got a great journey to the CECO chair or the CCO chair, and I know you will enjoy this month on The Compliance Life. Also check out one of my newest podcasts, The ESG Report, as that's become one of the most ubiquitous terms in the corporate world. Every compliance professional needs to understand their role in ESG. And finally, greetings and felicitations a commentary podcast where I take up a wide variety of topics. My first guest is Dr. Ben Lockwin, and we look at where we are in the COVID-19 pandemic. We also have a five-part series where we look at the science of Star Trek, the original series. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.